Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast, where we present the latest session of Maitri's popular program. My name is Elizabeth McIsaac, president of Maitri. We are a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights-based approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite experts to share five practical ideas on a key issue facing nonprofit organizations today. In this session, originally recorded on March 29, 2022, we asked Nandita Bajur and Galen McCluskey for their five good ideas about using human-centered design for social change. While many of you are dialing in from across Canada and perhaps beyond, I'm speaking to you from Toronto. I'd like to begin today's session by acknowledging the land where we live and work and recognizing our responsibilities and relationships where we are. As we are meeting and connecting virtually today, I would encourage you to acknowledge the place you occupy. I acknowledge that I am and Maitri is on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the territory is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Ojibwe and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the lands and resources around the Great Lakes. And so for today's session, with a growing number of barriers to accessing vital services, we need to think critically about accessibility and how people experience services in the social and public sector. Human-centered design is an approach which centers the voices and lived experiences of people who are impacted in the design or redesign of a program or service. During today's Five Good Ideas session, Nandita Bajur and Galen McCluskey will share the mindsets and principles that have helped their organization, Prosper Canada, introduce and integrate human-centered design into their projects. Specifically, you will hear about how they used human-centered design in their work, integrating financial empowerment into municipal services, and in designing impactful frontline services for people who live on low incomes. Both Nandita and Galen are with Prosper Canada in the Program Delivery and Integration Department. Nandita is the Senior Officer and Galen is the Manager. And it is now my pleasure to welcome Nandita and Galen. Perfect. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, and thanks for having us today. We're so excited to dive into the conversation. I wanted to start before we get into our five good ideas with just some definitions and orienting around what human-centered design is. Many of you might be joining this call and hearing about human-centered design for the first time. Maybe some of you have had more experience or know a bit more, but we wanted to start by just clarifying that from our perspective, human-centered design is first and foremost, an approach to problem solving and one that centers people's experiences in that approach. So there's lots of different types of activities that you might see in a human-centered design process. There's usually a research phase or an opportunity to engage with people to build empathy for people's current experiences. There's activities around sense-making, around taking what you hear and see and translating it into what you think the opportunities are for improvement or design. There's activities around prototyping, around generating new ideas and building them often together. And then there's also activities around testing. So once we've built ideas, putting them 
in real people's hands to get feedback on them, putting them out in the world to see how people respond. These are all activities that are part of human-centered design. There's also lots of tools and methods out there. And we find that this is one of the key ways that people will hear about human-centered design. They hear about things like journey maps or empathy maps. We're not gonna talk too much about those tools today, but I really wanna encourage you to check out the service design tools link that we have in uh, the five resources in the handout, because that's a great way to orient yourself to some of the tools that are out there in the world of human-centered design. The other thing I wanted to be really clear about before we dive in is that you're very likely doing a lot of the things we're going to talk about already. You're very likely engaging people to learn from their experiences. You're very likely testing ideas and, and running pilots and, uh, and experiments. But what human-centered design can offer is an approach to help strengthen what you're doing already and maybe some new ideas to augment your practice as well. Another piece of context I want to share is where we're coming from uh, as Prosper Canada and where Nandita and I are coming from in our practice. So Prosper Canada is a national charity that's dedicated to expanding economic op opportunity for Canadians living in poverty. And we work at both the program level and policy level. Since 2016, we've been incorporating human-centered design into that work, into how we do that work, and really focused on a branch of human-centered design called service design, which is applying human-centered design methods to the design of services that people engage with. The examples that we're going to share as we share our five good ideas are primarily pulled from our Prosperity Gateways program where we work with governments to find ways to integrate things like access to benefits, supports, one-on-one -on -one financial counseling and coaching into existing municipal programs and services. We work without having necessarily a solution in mind, and we start by exploring what might be possible and then working with the, the government that we're working with to identify what we can create that will be most impactful for the communities they serve. The five good ideas we're going to share today are intended to be a starting point for your practice as you look to explore human-centered design or deepen your practice. And these are really lessons that we feel we've learned from our practice, both within Prosper Canada in the Prosperity Gateways work and also the broader work in human-centered design that both of us have done. So the first idea we wanted to share, which we actually debated between the two of us whether we wanted to start with this one or put it to the end, because it can be a little bit challenging to wrap your head around. The central idea is we think that in encouraging these kinds of methods, you really need to encourage more poetry and less long division. So what do we mean by that? Long division is a shorthand for tools that are highly repeatable. You take a number, you have a process to work with it, and you can be sure that you're going to get the same result every single time. It's very predictable, very structured. Whereas poetry, as you can imagine, there's heuristics about what makes good poetry. How do you write poetry? People are, are actually breaking rules all the time about what good poetry looks like, and it's kind of a, an evolving practice. And it's emergent. You don't know what you're going to end up with. And that's 
something that is really, really critical to a human-centered design approach. One of the, the core things, as I mentioned, is these approaches center people's experiences. And so at the outset, you often don't know what intervention you're going to be building or what you're going to end up with, because so much depends on what you learn from people along the way. So if you're thinking about adopting human-centered design approaches, we've seen that there's a real tendency to sometimes try and systematize or make them highly predictable, sometimes even starting with the end in mind. And what we've found is that to do this really well, you need to be creating more space for poetry, more space to learn from what's going on and react to what's in front of you, and more space for craft and creativity rather than highly systematized approaches. You may be wondering, though, how do you actually manage that in a project that has defined timelines or you have funders with specific deliverables? In our Prosperity Gateways work, we really try and balance our structure with this kind of flexibility. So number one, we don't know what our final solution or, or end product is going to be when we start an engagement with a government system. We might have ideas about what it could be. For example, maybe it's access to banking supports or, or as I mentioned, one-on-one -on -one financial coaching or counseling. But we set up a process to help explore the possibility before we really start to dive into actually creating it and working to implement that, that kind of solution. So we typically follow four phases. We have a, a discovery phase where we're learning all we can about what people are experiencing in a given government system. Then we design, we work to generate ideas together with people who are impacted. Then we work to integrate once we've designed uh, an, a solution, then we work to integrate that solution within the government system, and then we transition. We, we support the government to continue running that program on an ongoing basis. And so that, those four phases give us some structure. And we know that uh, each of those phases typically has a defined timeline, and it has a, a defined endpoint that we know we need to get to. So in that discover phase, we know we need to end with a clear perspective on what the needs and opportunities are that are out there in the world, because that's an important ingredient for us to design together. But throughout that process, we're constantly evolving and shifting our approach based on what we hear. One really good example is with our work with the city of Edmonton, where we actually came in with a bit of an idea that maybe access to banking supports are going to be really, really important, particularly for people who are housing insecure. It shows up in a lot of different places. And so it's an idea that we were holding going in. And pretty immediately as we started to engage people at homeless shelters, at drop-in centers, and people using different city programs, it's actually we found in Edmonton, Lots of people who are housing insecure have access to banking. And so it right away made us think that we needed to focus somewhere else. So this is a good example of what the flexibility in poetry that I'm talking about is. Because if we came in with this idea that we were going to do access to banking services and we we're going to work with the city to do that, we would have had to totally readjust and adapt. So ultimately, what this first good idea is about is you don't know what you're going to discover in the process. In fact, that's why you're going through the process. And so if that's true, 
then you also need to create space in how you structure your process and your approach to adapt, to respond, and to create more room for poetry. All right, Nandita, I think it's over to you for our next one. Yes, thanks, Galen. And that's actually a perfect transition for our next idea, which is use design tools as a scaffold and not a checklist. So to continue adding to what Galen was saying, in your travels, you may have come across a lot of tools that we typically use in design, such as personas or journey maps or service blueprints, whatever it is. Often folks that are interested in trying human-centered design in their own work use a lot of these tools as must-dos instead of tools that are in your toolkit that you can then deploy whenever you need. And really what we've learned is that the design process is you as a designer constantly responding to a series of questions that emerge. How do we make sure everyone is on the same page? How can we get a full understanding of what barriers folks are facing in this process? How do we make sure that the people that we're engaging feel safe and supported while participating in our interviews or our design sessions? So it's how you answer these questions and the tools that you decide to use that build a scaffold for your project. And that scaffold is for you as you're navigating this process, but it's also for the people that are engaging in your process, whether that's clients or residents that use these services or it's staff, whoever it is. What we found is that scaffold helps build trust in the process. It helps build trust in you as the designer, as the person leading this process of designing a program or redesigning a program or making improvements to existing services. But it also builds trust in your organization that's heading this process or heading this change. Really how it does that is by allowing you to deploy the right tools for the right purpose based on what you're hearing in an emergent way. So one example maybe we can share is one of our projects with a municipality. We were working with a team to build their internal capacity and help them identify opportunities to strengthen existing services or existing financial empowerment services that they were already delivering to their community. And through our interviews and our co-design sessions, what we observed about this team was that they were often handling clients individually and on their own. So there seemed to be a real need on the team for building alignment or building a shared understanding for how their individual work contributed to their team or their department's outcomes. And that wasn't, when we first started our work, that wasn't on our radar at all, that this was such an important need to accomplish all the things that we wanted to accomplish. So this was another kind of pivot point for us where we had to go through a process of deciding which tool we should be using in our next steps after our co-design session, once we're ready to identify opportunities or to, to help them see their work in a different perspective. What we did and what we found to work really well is to start with that as a problem statement instead of starting with a specific tool that we had in mind. So we considered service blueprints, which weren't quite right because they help us visualize more of the process and the kind of back end logistics rather than the outcomes. 
We also considered an ecosystem map, which would have helped visualize all of the, the supporting services or all the p- possible partnerships and opportunities for partnerships, which wasn't quite right, as again, because that's not what the team needed. And we also considered a journey map, which was, again, not quite fitting the bill because it was focused more on the client experience rather than how the team worked. So what we landed on at the end was more of an opportunity map where we could ground the opportunities that the team had worked on identifying through this process within the existing services that they were already offering. And this kind of map really helped all of them together visualize how their individual work contributes to the outcomes or the priorities they had co-developed and to see how their future work might fit into those outcomes as well. What we found was the map was something tangible for them to look at and make together, and it helped them build a common understanding of why they do this work, or even when it gets tough, and even when they're dealing with clients who are in crisis situations and they often don't have resources to point them into. So it was really important, especially in this case, to to emphasize that there is a collective why. As you're designing or redesigning a program and looking for a process to follow, we would really suggest starting with the challenge instead of the tool itself. As Galen was saying in our first idea, maybe don't go into a project with a very defined idea of what you want to get out of it. I know we've come across some projects where there are defined outputs, like in this project, we will create a journey map. And that may not be the map or the visual tool that's best suited for your project. That level of flexibility that's required really starts from the beginning. And the second tip or (laughs) suggestion here is be clear about why you're using a certain tool and communicate that intention to the people you're engaging. What we've learned is that design tools help you form a scaffold, but it's really your communication that connects those dots and fills in the gaps to actually build your initiative. And that's where it can be most helpful. I will move on to our third idea, which is start and end with people's experiences. I'm sure this is surprising for no one as this is a core tenet of uh, human-centered design, which is to build around real people's experiences from the very beginning and keep it central throughout, keep it a central pillar, bring it to the forefront whenever you can. And really what we've learned is that it's not enough to just center people in general but you really have to center the right people. You have to center the people that face the most barriers or the most risks in this experience. What we've learned is that to design something that's easy to access and to use for everyone, you have to emphasize or start with the people that face those multi-layered barriers that you know are going to make a difference in that journey. So take a critical lens of who's impacted disproportionately in this and start with that experience. The key that we found to keeping these experiences at the center throughout is to build a shared understanding of them. What this often looks like for us is 
context setting at the beginning of design sessions and making sure that you're sharing the story or the key challenges that you've learned that people experience and then ensure that as you're designing those challenges and those experiences and those stories are at the center of those ideas that you're developing or you're brainstorming. Another kind of piece around a shared understanding is it's vital that it's not just you as the program designer or the program lead who's listening to and understanding these challenges. Once you've designed the program, it's really the frontline staff that are delivering the service and senior management that'll be driving or making program decisions. If you leave a designed program with no connection to why it was designed this way, it leaves it really vulnerable to losing that essence of that experience. We use this a lot in our work. And another example from the city of Edmonton was when we were co-designing with them, we very intentionally invited a cross-section of folks that were impacted or connected to the program that we were working with. This included city program staff. It included frontline service center staff that actually delivered in-person services. It also included residents or clients who used the program. So creating that shared space where all of these stakeholders are in the same room or call in this case is really, really important. And the key intention was for them to have an opportunity to listen to and understand each other's experience. That act of building together was really an act of sharing each other's perspectives and building the kind of empathy that you probably wouldn't get from reading a report or reading an insights deck. Internally, this helped build momentum at the city to continue this initiative. And externally, I think, in most cases, in other projects as well, it builds a lot of understanding on the residents' part of the structural barriers that frontline staff are up against as well. So there's this kind of collective growth and understanding as you're going through this process, which is really important for everyone. As you get into this work, if you're worried about how to center people's experiences throughout the process, we found bringing a critical lens to our work is and remains very, very important. This means challenging the assumptions that you or the people around you or, or even organizationally we might have about who is impacted, why and how they're impacted and what our program or service can do to, to improve that experience. Another piece is giving yourself time and permission to identify the who early and build trust. A lot of this process depends on folks authentically engaging in your work and in the scaffolding or in the process that you build. And to do that, they need to trust you and they need to trust that the process that you're putting in front of them will actually lead somewhere that they want it to lead. Lastly, dedicate time for alignment. Oh, this is a big one. Alignment, I feel, comes up in every conversation, every project we do, because a common understanding of the needs and the opportunities makes 
a world of a difference throughout the process, but also in terms of sustainability of your program after you're done or after the design development process is done. And with that, I will hand it over back to Galen for idea number four. Thanks, Nandita. As has probably become pretty clear through what Nandita shared, there's a lot of emphasis within a human-centered design process on bringing people together to create together. And there's so many benefits to that shared understanding. Nandita has, I think, done a great job of, of underscoring why that's important. But if you're like us and most people we work with, that can also be scary to bring a whole bunch of different people from outside your organization, inside your organization, partners and funders together to build together. And that's what our, our fourth idea is about. Focus on the whys when building together, not the what's. So there's two really common pitfalls that we see when we talk about this co-design process. Number one is we have to build exactly what people tell us to. This idea that in two hours or three hours or even a day, if you're lucky to spend that long together, we're going to come up with ideas and we have to move forward with one or multiples of those. Another pitfall is maybe the reverse of that, which is, won't people be upset if we don't pick the ideas that they suggested? And I think this is really tricky for a lot of organizations because we want to maintain good relationships with the people we engage and we want to show that their suggestions and their ideas and their perspectives have meaning and impact. And I want to share just a little bit of an example of where you can get stuck in this kind of thinking of we have to do exactly what people are telling us to do 100% of the time. And the real problem with that approach is that when you get into this, you're going to hear diverse and divergent perspectives, and it's actually not going to be possible to do everything everyone has suggested to you across the process. In some work we were doing, we've been working on designing an online tool to support people living with disabilities to navigate the benefit system and access disability income supports. And one of the really, really polarizing things that came up is uh, exactly what words we should be using to describe the people who should be using this type of site. Should it be people living with disabilities? Should it be people with diverse abilities? We heard some very different perspectives on this topic and very polarized, very strong preferences in both directions. And so at face value, it appears that if we do one, we're going to let the other group down and that we have to somehow decide who is right or whose perspective we're going to elevate here. But I actually think our fourth good idea is about looking for the broader whys behind ideas, because those are often much more important and much more useful than the immediate ideas people are presenting you with. So in, in this case, yes, we're hearing two quite different and in some ways opposing preferences and suggestions for language. But the common theme that is coming out of both of these was things like, number one, wanting it to be recognized and understood and reflected that I might be facing 
uh, greater challenges or barriers in accessing different types of supports. And so that was kind of where the people with disabilities cohort was coming from, was we want to be recognized that there are challenges out there that we need support with. And on the flip side, the other theme that was coming up was, but we also want to be treated as equals. We don't want to be treated as inferior. We want to be respected and supported throughout this process. And those two lessons are things we can take away with and incorporate in all aspects of how we design this experience of this website. So yes, there is a decision to be made about the language that we use. Uh, and we've tried to pick a, a very specific and distinct example. But actually what's more important is what these ideas are telling us about the context, about where people are coming from and what we need to keep in mind as we're designing an experience. And actually, finding ways to help people feel respected and supported while acknowledging that they may face barriers and challenges, that is totally possible to do. It's not an either or a situation. And so looking at the whys behind things also allows us to see commonalities and gives us a much better place to start incorporating ideas into design. There's a couple expectations then that I think are really important to set for yourself as well as for any participants you're bringing into a collaborative design session. Number one, being clear that building together is an exploration, not a commitment. That's actually a lot of pressure to put onto like a three hour session together that we're going to design the future of how we're going to build this government service. It's actually really difficult to do and it's a difficult expectation to set. What I think is a better expectation is setting that we, we're we going to build together to learn from each other and explore ideas so that we can continue to refine ideas together going forward. Building ideas together helps you explore themes, commonalities, desires, and frustrations together. And you'll often find that when people connect with each other in these kinds of sessions, it becomes very clear that you're not going to be able to do everything that everyone would like. And so being clear and upfront about that and creating space for people to meet and connect creates a much broader shared understanding and can create support for a lot of different ideas moving forward. So number one, be explicit upfront about what you can achieve in a collaborative design session. And number two, Communicate back to people how you integrated their perspectives, because it may not be you asked for this program, we deliver this program, end of story. But it can be something like we heard these different perspectives, and here's how that informed how we move forward. That, I think, is a message that can resonate with people and can help to diffuse some of that anxiety you or, or people in your organization might feel about this process of bringing people together and, and asking them to guide you, which can be a scary one. The last good idea we want to share is to use boundaries and constraints as creative springboards. We spent a lot of time thinking about creativity and how to create space for creativity to emerge. And one of the things that becomes really clear that I think many of you will be familiar with is that a world of no constraints is actually really challenging. This is you know, often called like the tyranny of the blank canvas. When you don't know where to start, you have so many different possibilities. It can be really hard to move forward. 
constraints can often focus us in negative ways. We can get fixated on all the problems, all the things that stand in the way of us achieving our objectives. And what we would really encourage you to do is to find productive and positive ways to work with constraints to actually help bolster creativity and bolster thinking about ideas. By way of example, one of the government systems we were working with, we're working with a small department that had extremely limited staff time. They primarily engaged one-on-one with clients. They had a very limited budget to do anything big or splashy. And they also were operating within a much bigger system that was presenting a lot of barriers for the clients they were working with. These are a lot of constraints and many of them probably feel very familiar. And it can be really easy to then say, no, we can't do anything because of this litany of constraints that's holding us back. And in our process, what we really try and do is turn constraints into opportunities as a way of engaging positively with them. For example, in this case, we have limited staff time. We can't do lots and lots and lots of new things because we're spending so much time one-on-one with clients and we don't want to lose that. That's a fantastic starting point. That's a fantastic set of constraints. And what it ended up in us doing with that team was starting to explore what we might do with that. So we started to ask questions like, how might we amplify some of our existing staffing resources? We, we have limited staffing, but what can we do with that to have a bigger impact? And that started lots of conversations about how we can support community members to support each other, which I don't think we would have gotten to if we had uh, a ton of staff available with lots of idle time. We wouldn't have had that conversation about how do we support the community to support the community. Another, how might we start to weave in financial empowerment into other types of conversations that we're already having. So this provokes some really creative lines of thinking and discussion about what might be possible and was very energizing for the team that had been facing so many different constraints to start to explore possibilities within them. So what we've tried to demonstrate here is that everyone faces lots of constraints and it can be easy for those to be a damper on thinking about possibility because we get so fixated on what we can't do. And to make constraints a creative springboard, what we really encourage you to do is to ask what can we do with that constraint, within that constraint, or to get around that constraint. You may have noticed that I use the words, how might we, a few times. That's the magic words, if you will, for thinking through possibilities. So that's another maybe five and a half idea that you can take away as well. We really think that constraints are a really good opportunity to build into possibilities. So we can translate things like, we can't do that into things like, I could see approvals being a barrier to implementation. How might we overcome that? Or how might we deal with that approval process? So translating a no into a possibility is a really core part of working with constraints. The the last thing I'll share there as well is that critical to that also is recognizing the assets that you have. And often constraints can be assets if just viewed from a different lens. So the team we were working with, constraint was that we have so much time one-on-one with clients, we can't do these other initiatives. 
an asset is that we have so much time one-on-one -on -one with clients. What can we do with that? So that's the fifth idea we wanted to leave you with. Constraints as part of this process can actually be creative springboards if approached from the right direction. And so that, that's a lot of ideas that we've chucked at you. Hopefully there's some time to digest and ask questions, but Nandita will wrap things up and hopefully bring some order to the chaos we've just introduced. Yes, lots of chaos all the time. And that's how human-centered design works, but with a little bit of structure. So really what we hope we've left you with is at least the understanding or the mindset that more than anything, human-centered design is a set of prompts or questions to ask yourself. It's not necessarily a prescribed process, like first you have to do this and then this and then this, but really it's a lens that you can apply to any situation or any program or context that you're in and use some of the tools and mindsets and methodologies that we've shared, but also that are in some of the resources that we've shared to contextualize and to customize the approach to be your own and to fit your own needs. We want to highlight, I think, some of the questions that we think are the most important or that come up a lot in our work and probably also with yours. Are you centering people with lived experience? I think this is human-centered design and you will come across that a lot. And if you are, do they feel safe to share their stories and be authentic in the space and the engagement that you've created? And then are you being transparent about what your intentions are, what your limitations are, what your expectations are? Because again, as we've learned, and I think as we've shared over the past half hour, that's a really big part of kind of building that trust and building that scaffolding that holds the projects together. And then are you creating space for new and divergent ideas to emerge? That's a huge part of human-centered design. That's why we love it so much and we love the work that we do so much is all that excitement and that energy that really builds when you're bringing people together and they're brainstorming new ideas, new ways to do things. Are you creating space for that to happen? And then are you testing your ideas as, as you go? I think we touched on it a little bit here, but there's a lot more in the resources where testing and building things and putting them out into the world is the best way to learn about if it'll work or not. Start early and do it often. We're really hoping that these five ideas can help you navigate these questions and create your own process. We've learned that the more we do this work and the more we talk to people that do this work, the more we learn about how to do it better. We hope that you can join us in this adventure and share your own stories and strategies with us as you experiment new ways to do it. Thank you, Nandita. Thank you, Galen. Your math is off. There's way more than five good ideas in there. And you just kept piling them on, Nandita. That was just great. Some reiteration. And I liked how you came back to the human in human-centered design at the end. And that's where our first couple of questions are coming in already. The first two questions actually came up uh, while good idea number three was being talked about in terms of centering people. And the first question is actually for a little bit of a reiteration. I think it's actually asking for the elevator pitch or the value proposition. This may be obvious, but can you articulate more about why? 
Why is it vital to center the people who experience the greatest barriers and risks? What does that yield? That's a great question. And I feel like I can talk about that for ages. In design, there's a principle or an edict that gets passed around often, which is design for extremes. So it's this idea that the people on the margins or the people that face layer upon layer upon layer of barrier are facing accumulation or facing all of those barriers and other people along the journey are facing maybe a single one in isolation. So if you're starting with the folks on the extremes, you're really hearing about a wider range of challenges and understanding in a much deeper way than if you weren't. This goes to a little bit of how do you manage the process because you're, you know, where you're working with people at risk or who may be vulnerable in one way or another. How does your approach provide immediate support to the people who are sharing their experiences? So things like trauma, compensation for their time, socializing around a good culturally sensitive meal, whatever it might be. Is this integrated in the support for frontline staff? How do you bring that in? I heard compensation come up. Absolutely, I think should be considered in every single engagement you do. I think core is that it demonstrates that you actually value people's perspectives and also recognizes that lived experience is a form of expertise that should be compensated for when people are sharing it. I think often it's treated as something that people will just give you their time from their own goodwill. But I think it's really important to value people's experiences in that way. Trauma is a a really important part of a lot of the work that we do because, as you can imagine, lots and lots of stories come up that might be triggering. And so I think there's a a few things that are really important, although if you dive into trauma-informed practice, there's much better formalized and much deeper uh, set of structures that I'm going to be able to cover in our remaining two or three minutes of this question. But a few things would be making it really clear that people have the opportunity to participate or not in whatever degree or capacity they want. So in an interview, that would look like if I ask a question that you don't feel like responding to, you can just skip that question. In a group design session, that looks like if you need a break at any time, go take a break. No questions asked. There's no limitations on that. In the past, we've also made space when we've worked with social workers in the process, we've actually made space for participants to meet with social workers after the session as well to debrief or if there's any issues or challenges that came up that we can actually immediately work with them on. That's another really good way to provide supports for people. Elizabeth, I feel like there was another part to that question, but I'm not sure if I got to all of them. I I think so. I mean, it's about being mindful in designing the process based on who you're working with. And so if if social workers may be needed because there's a a risk of trauma or re-traumatizing, I think the the idea of culturally sensitive practices or food or, or things that might make people at ease and engage them in the process. Absolutely. Yeah. And and one very specific thing you can also consider doing is exploring when do people need to be in mixed groups and when is there an important opportunity for people to be in like groups with each other. So we talked about bringing staff and participants together, but we often try to create space 
for people who have similar types of experiences to debrief with each other and work together um, because that can also be a really important form of support as opposed to say being the, the only two people with a particular lived experience at a table of executives and managers and things like that, which can be a, a challenging experience for anyone. I would just like to add one thing to this piece about being trauma-informed. I think a huge strategy, and I think something that gets missed often in our work is adding or ensuring that you have time to do secondary research. So there is a lot of amazing research that's been done about the barriers and challenges folks face in different systems. And if there's an opportunity to not re-traumatize folks by asking the same questions, there's your answer. I think start with secondary research so you can identify what are gaps of, in knowledge so you're not asking those same questions again, and you can still create a safe space for the individual or the group that you're working with, whatever that means for that group or that person. There's a question regarding idea number five, which was boundaries and constraints as a springboard. I kind of heard it as necessity as the mother of invention or <laughs> um, power of positive thinking. Uh, the question is for the example referenced with idea number five, what were the outcomes or short-term and long-term changes that the staff who were part of the discussion experienced and were they sustained? That specific example is one that's ongoing. So in terms of long-term outcomes, that's something we're gonna continue supporting uh, that staff team through. Although I have other examples I can point to, but the immediate short-term outcome, we actually recently had a debrief and project close with them, was I think all the staff really highlighted how helpful it was to be able to think about the challenges they were facing in a different way and, and approach them from a lens of positivity. I think that was a pretty universal piece of feedback that they gave us, that it was a very different way for them of engaging. And they were excited then in the months to come to continue applying that lens to the other challenges they were facing. So I think that the short-term very specific outcome was transitioning from a place of challenge and scarcity to a place of possibility. In other situations as well, to, to long-term outcomes, I think that's definitely something that needs to be nurtured and encouraged. There's concepts around social change like snapback that we have a tendency to default back to our existing structures and, and processes. And so I think if you're looking for, to support a group or an organization around a longer term type of change, that's where a longer term engagement is important. So something we're gonna be doing with that group on an ongoing basis is, is checking in, seeing how things are going. And if they need support or if it feels like they're getting stuck again, that's an opportunity for us to continue to provide these kinds of supports in this additional lens. This question is, is asking for your advice. How would you advise guiding a team to think about the design in terms of the organization and project as opposed to personal preferences? How do you help them get there? Ooh, good question. If I'm reading the question correctly, it seems a bit like it's getting beyond like individual team members' personal preferences and seeing kind of organization and project. And I think the, the fundamental thing I would point to is that engaging others in that process and hearing from the perspectives of people in the world that your work is impacting is probably the surest way to start to dispel some of those notions. Uh, because what matters is not what 
individual team member A or individual team member B or C want. What matters is what matters to the people that we hope to impact or support. So that's a, a really critical way to redirect a team. If you find you get mired in this like quagmire of my idea versus your idea, a really good way to redirect is like, well, what needs did we see? What opportunities did we hear from the people we were engaging with? If you're really stuck because you heard lots of things, that's a good place to start prototyping and actually sharing ideas back with the community as a way to engage too, because they will tell you what works for them and what doesn't if you create the space to, to listen and hear. So I think that's my, my main tip for that one is to, to start from a place of what matters is what matters to the people that we hope to be supporting or we hope to impact. Let's turn to them to understand what we should move forward. So some really good fundamentals in open communication and keeping the channels open to really co-create and create those conditions. Mm. It's 1.59. I have more questions, but I'm, I'm going <laughs> to stop here because we told people it was going to go to two o'clock. That was just terrific, packed with really great ideas, wonderful suggestions. At the beginning of this, I was going to say, my question is, is this something, don't try it at home, but I'm looking behind <laughs> you, Galen, and I see sticky notes all over your wall. <laughs> and I think that's at home. So maybe we just have to start with the sticky notes and see where it takes us. Thank you both so much. That was just tremendously insightful and lots of good ideas for us to, to walk away and go back to our desks and think, how can I apply this? Maybe I can do this at home. So thank you both very much. Terrific. Thank you for listening to five good ideas about using human-centered design for social change with Nandita Bajur and Galen McCluskey. We link to their five good ideas, resources, and a full transcript of the session in our show notes. You can find all of our five good ideas sessions from past seasons on the Matri website at matri.com forward slash five dash good dash ideas. And you can subscribe to the five good ideas podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time. <laughs>